And so friends, hear the word of the Lord proclaimed to you from Philippians chapter 1, verses 12, 12 to 30. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. It has become clear that throughout the whole palace guard and everywhere else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, brothers and sisters, have become confident in the Lord and dare to proclaim the gospel without fear. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others do so out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put there to advance the gospel. The former preach Christ not out of sincerity, supposing to stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? What the important thing is that whether through false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what am I to choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I should remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that by my being with you again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. For it has been... For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ that not only you believe in him, but also suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the early 1960s, Birmingham, Alabama was one of the most racially divided cities in the United States of America, both legally and culturally. Black citizens were treated as second-class citizens, 
forced to use separate washrooms, restaurants, swimming pools, schools, and stores. There were significant disparities between the kinds of legal and economic support black people received compared to white people. Injustice in the city was rampant. And so, at the height of the civil rights movement in the U.S., it was hardly surprising that one of the largest protest movements sprang up in Birmingham, Alabama, in 1963. The movement began with boycotts of businesses and then progressed to staged sit-ins in those businesses. And finally, the protests grew to include thousands of people walking, 50 at a time, day after day, from 16th Street Baptist Church to City Hall to talk to the mayor. Among those organizing the protests was Martin Luther King, Jr., on April 10, 1963, Bull Connor, the city's commissioner of public safety and a staunch defender of segregation, of keeping black people and white people apart, raised the bail bond for those protesters who had been arrested from $200 to $1,500. And the campaign quickly ran out of money. Martin Luther King Jr. Was the, was the organization's main fundraiser. And so his associates urged him to travel across the country and raise money for the cause. But King had previously pledged that he would remain with the protesters, with the marchers in solidarity, even to the point of being imprisoned himself. This is what happened. He stayed. And on April 12, a good Friday, he was arrested and put in jail in Birmingham. This was, of course, for the movement, reason for despair. There's not a whole lot a person can do from within prison walls. Centuries earlier, the apostle Paul sits in his own jail cell. And he, too, has been stymied in his work. Paul was a traveling apostle. He had been called by God to travel throughout the Roman Empire, telling people the good news of Jesus Christ, converting them to faith, bringing new believers together, planting churches that would continue to spread the good news. He went from one city to another, always moving on when he felt the work had been accomplished. There was so much of the world, though, that did not yet know Christ, and Paul was eager to proclaim him. But now he can't. His world has been shrunk to four walls and a small barred window, a bed, a wash basin, a thin blanket, and whatever food his friends can procure for him. News of the outside world reaches him days after these events take place, and his own communication to his partner churches takes days, if not weeks, to reach them. Life is slow here, and he doesn't know if or when he'll be released. 
And the news that he does hear from the outside world isn't particularly good. Whether Paul is imprisoned in Rome or in Ephesus, both these cities, all cities in the Roman Empire, holds to the cult of the emperor. The savior of the peoples is, without exception, the emperor Nero. The emperor is worshipped, has statues erected of him in temples, and is depicted constantly as the conquering hero. So the idea that Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the only true savior of the world, well, that was a dangerous and rather unpopular idea amongst the cults of the emperor. And Paul hears in prison that people are talking about Jesus, are preaching about Jesus, some earnestly, but others to heap trouble on Paul. Did you hear? They say loudly to passers-by. Did you hear about this Jesus who is king of kings and lord of lords who died and then was raised from the dead? Did you hear what this Paul fellow is saying? Even Nero is to bow to this king. These people don't believe this message. They have no desire to actually increase the number of people who believe. They just want to remind people that this Paul fellow is no good. Maybe they're jealous, maybe they're afraid, whatever the motive. They aim to keep Paul in prison and to squash the growth of this movement. And so it looks like for the moment, moment, this movement, or at least Paul's participation in this movement, might be a little stuck indeed. Circumstances seem to have hindered Paul. This traveling apostle is stuck behind bars, ridiculed and persecuted from the outside. This is not how things are supposed to go for Paul. If God does in fact want to use Paul to spread the gospel, then why has he let this happen to Paul? Why has God let this happen? It's a question we ask a lot when things look grim. We ask it when we experience our own personal sorrows and setbacks. And we ask it as a church when it seems like we just aren't quite able to do church the way we want to. To live out the mission we believe God has called us to for one reason or another. Because we have big dreams, we have big ideas, we have a big vision for what God is calling us to. We imagine kids' programs full to bursting, in which we creatively communicate God's love to kids of all ages. 
We picture ministries with really excellent resources and curriculums by the top authors and thinkers of the day that allow us to dig deep into our faith. We think of outreach initiatives that bring in new faces every week and evangelism efforts by which we reach our neighbors for Christ. We hear in our heads worship services filled to the bursting with singing. We have big dreams, big hopes, big vision for what the church could do for the kingdom of God. And then... A pandemic hits, and synod happens, and inflation starts eating away at our wallets. And instead of that big vision, we're talking about how to stick together, how to meet our budget, how to adjust our programs to match volunteer capacity. And we wonder, why is God letting this happen? Why do we keep being distracted by all of these other things when all we really want to do is live out God's call for our lives and for our church? I think these last couple years have led many of us to feel stuck and stymied as we seek to do ministry in the world. And that's frustrating and discouraging. And given that Paul is in an even worse spot than we are, we would expect him to be frustrated and discouraged as well. And to be sure, there are times in his imprisonment when Paul does feel sad and defeated. In 2 Corinthians, another letter he writes from this jail, he talks about the despair he feels at his present situation. Paul is not always happy and upbeat. But even amidst his unhappiness, he has a deep, abiding, sometimes flabbergasting, joy. Because of this, he writes, I rejoice. What causes him to rejoice even as he sits in prison? Paul rejoices because what he cares most about in the whole world is the gospel being heard and proclaimed. He wants the world to know the good news of Jesus Christ. And even while he sits in prison, and it seems like he can't do what he most cares about, still, the gospel is being heard and proclaimed. Historians tell us that Paul would have had prison guards assigned to him day and night for four-hour shifts at a time. Which means that Paul had, pardon the pun, a captive audience. Thank you. <laughs> Paul had these men to whom he could preach the gospel. And men, these prison guards who would see his attitude, would take note of his enduring and surprising hope 
and would wonder what gives this man this sense of freedom even while he is behind bars. And so he writes that word gets around the whole palace about this man who is imprisoned because he loves Jesus and refuses to deny that he loves Jesus, which in turn encourages other believers outside of prison to also be bold in their faith and share the love of Jesus with others. And Paul isn't even upset that people are preaching Jesus with false motives because at least the news about Jesus Christ is being preached and heard. Paul, raised a Jew, would have known well the story of Joseph, the story of a man betrayed by his family, falsely imprisoned, and left to die but who then comes to a position of power and saves thousands from a famine. He knows what Joseph declared to his brothers, what men intended for evil, God can use for good. And so even in these despairing circumstances that would appear to hamper Paul's ability to serve God as he feels called, God is yet using Paul and creating means by which the gospel is preached and heard. God is accomplishing his good purposes. And so Paul can rejoice. And so here is what I have been wondering about and praying about this week as I have reflected on this text. What if our circumstances are not a distraction from our mission as a church, but a way in which to attentively live into our mission as a church? What if the ministry we are being called to right now is to walk alongside one another through a season of conflict and fatigue and uncertainty with grace and intentionality and the hopeful trust that God is accomplishing his good purposes through this journey? And what if the way in which we conduct ourselves in this season and in the face of these challenges is how the good news of Jesus Christ is preached to the world? In verse 27 of this text, Paul writes to the Philippians, whatever happens, whatever happens, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed but that you will be saved, and that by God. The way in which we conduct ourselves in the face of opposition or hardship 
or frustrating circumstances is a proclamation to the world. If we hold together in love, that becomes, says N.T. Wright, a sign, a reminder to ourselves that we already belong to the coming king. And it becomes a sign to those outside the world, outside the church, that a new world is beginning in which the threats of the old one don't work anymore. It's a sign that there is a new kingdom already growing and spreading and changing the world. And that the old order of things is already coming undone. Love, humility, mercy, justice, and grace will have the final say. And so the challenges before us as a church, before so many churches right now, those challenges are an opportunity. An opportunity to be this kind of witness to the world. To declare that we trust that God does indeed hold us fast. To show the world the transformative power of love and humility to demonstrate that the blood of Christ is strong enough to bind us together, to declare that Christ is the King, and no circumstances can prevent him from accomplishing the purposes of his kingdom. When Martin Luther King Jr. was sitting in jail in Birmingham, apparently unable to continue in his mission to support the civil rights campaign in the city, he wrote a letter. It was a response to some white Christian and Jewish clergy who were distressed at the commotion the civil rights movement was causing and were urging King and others to be patient and just let things play out over time, trusting that things would eventually become better for the black community. And King wrote a lengthy reply, declaring that justice cannot wait, and that the church must not kowtow to the expectations of power and society, but must show the world that in Christ a new order of things had been ushered in. The time to act, he wrote, is now. And this call, justice and dignity for all people, he wrote, is the mission of the church. This letter from a Birmingham jail became one of the most important documents of the civil rights movement. It captured the themes of the movement and is still read and studied as a call to action, anti-racism, and a striving for peace that is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And so in the midst of King's despairing circumstances, as he was supposedly stymied in jail, God yet used him and his voice in powerful and far-reaching ways in this movement towards justice and equality. And in a world governed by the forces of fear 
and polarization and pride and despair. The church is called to bear witness to the kingship of Christ and the kingdom he has ushered in already by living together in faith, in hope, in unity, in humility, in love. And this season we are in, filled with anxiety and conflict and uncertainty, is an opportunity to do just that. To disagree with one another carefully and lovingly. To be gentle with one another. To be humble in our conversations. To eagerly seek God's will for us, trusting that where he calls us will be good. To live in joyful hope as we serve a faithful God. And so the time for mission is now. The time to be church is now. The time to see what God is up to among us is now. So I invite you to lean into this season, to be part of the conversations to listen and to speak, to be vulnerable, to be active, to live out of the covenant we have made with each other to be community. It might seem that this is a a blip that we just have to get through as a church. And it can be easier to sit back and just wait to see what happens. But this, this moment and this season is an opportunity for us to do church. And how we do church together is an opportunity for us to bear witness to the God who accomplishes his purposes no matter what. The God who is King of kings and Lord of lords, who is thwarted by no circumstances, who is surprised by nothing, and who holds us, community CRC, the CRCNA, the global church, who holds us in his hands. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, our God, help us to be your church, to be attentive to the ways you are calling us into mission, calling us to bear witness to your power, your faithfulness, your love. Help us not to despair, but to rejoice always that you accomplish your purposes no matter what, and you use us in surprising ways to do so. May we trust that there is nothing outside of your power or your knowledge. Rather, the seasons you have called us to are already known to you. And you provide us with everything we need. So help us to live in faith and hope. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.